Happy Palm Sunday. Nice to see you. So glad you're here with us today. And I want to talk for just a few minutes about the topic of who is this? Who is this? And if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 21. And you're going to need your Bibles today, whether they be the electronic version or, or the real book, because we're going to be turning to a lot of different passages. But I want to read the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you at once. You will find a donkey tied there with their colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and they will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, and they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never heard that from the lips of children and infants, the Lord will have his praise called forth and he left them and he went out to the city of Bethany where he spent the night heavenly father over these next few minutes we are not here to hear a monologue but we are here to have a dialogue with your holy spirit and so speak to us and reveal the truth that we need in our lives and we pray this in Jesus name amen This morning, you're going to be turning back and forth to several different passages, some that are found in Matthew 21, some that are found in Mark chapter 11, some that are found in Luke chapter 19, and then in John chapter 12. And honestly, as you read each of these accounts of what we consider Palm Sunday, I did that this week, spent time in each of them, and there were several times I had to stop and say, now, where did I read that at? Which, which book did that one come from? And, and just turning back and forth to catch them. And I discovered that what I want to offer you today, now, if you were, I, I recognize it's 10 minutes to 12, and some of your stomachs are beginning to growl, but... If you go out and at the end of the meal, they bring you this dessert menu, and the pictures look great. And, and if you had the choice between choosing a single layer of chocolate cake or a four-layer chocolate cake loaded with chocolate frosting between each layer, how many of you, like me, are, I'm grabbing the biggest piece of cake that I can get? Some of you are looking around, and there was like seven of you that raised your hands, and the rest of you just will not admit it. 
that that is really what you wanted. And I want you to understand that the, the scripture gives us a four-layer chocolate cake of this event that takes place today. And, it, and as you read each of them, it's unique in the fact that, that probably from a reporter's perspective, if each of you were standing on a different street corner and you saw something happen, each of you would have the, the main details, but perhaps the details that you would write down would be slightly different, and, and that is true of what is written for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as it relates to the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Interesting enough, I love what John says in John 12, 16, because he's, he's the only one that has the guts to say this. At first, the disciples didn't understand all of this. It was only after Jesus was glorified that they understood all these things. In other words, there are things that are happening right before their eyes, and John's going, we didn't even see it. We saw the events, but we didn't know what it meant. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever read the Bible and felt that way or not, that you're reading something, you're going, you know, I, I'm going to have to read this again and again because I, I see this and I, I understand the words, but it just doesn't mean much to me. And frankly, there are many of you that may have attended many Palm Sunday services, and quite honestly, you would have to say, I'm, I'm really not sure that I get it. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit to enable us to see some things that we may never have seen before or certainly ways that we can understand it. And I love that John is unique in saying that, that you know what, there, there are those of us that were there and we just didn't get it. Now you would think that everybody would be delighted and celebrating as Jesus is making his triumphal entry, particularly the religious people, but that is not the case at all because it records that they were indignant that Jesus was receiving this kind of intention. And they were concerned because they were confronted by the power that he had that they did not have. And they knew that if Jesus continues to grow in popularity, their popularity would decrease. And this animosity and the frustration that these religious leaders were facing at the time finally spilled over into their conversation when they said this, Jesus, or teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, this praise is getting out of hand. And we don't like to hear this praise for you, of all people. And Jesus quite masterfully handles this situation by responding to them. He goes, you know, I, I, I could tell them to quit praising. And then the rocks and the hills would cry out in praise. Clearly a magnificence that Jesus was trying to tell them that a metaphor that's saying, you don't understand the glory that is within your presence right now. And so the religious leaders looked and they recognized, we are losing this battle and the whole world has gone after him. And I want you to know this morning, there are millions and millions of people attending church today because Jesus is still being pursued because of his power and because of his grace and because of his presence. And when you think about that, Jesus was born in a no-place place. He was born in obscurity, laid in a manger. His companions were not other babies in a maternity ward. His companions were barn animals. His public and pulpit ministry lasted three years, and he was about to die at the age of 33, and yet today people like us are still lifting up the name of Jesus Christ as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as he enters into the city, there were those that were asking the question, who is this? And I, I believe that there may be some of you today or those of you that are joining us online that are going, you know, I've participated in a lot of Palm Sundays, but who is this? 
that we are really talking about. Some considered him a religious man. Some considered him a prophet who died, others a hero, some a revolutionist. But when we understand who he is and when we look at it through the lens of Scripture, we recognize that none of those categories can contain him. And for that reason this morning, I want to squeeze four Gospels into one story, basically into three pictures. I don't want to add anything that's not there, but I don't want to miss anything that is there for us. How many of you have read a book and then you went and saw the movie of that book and were disappointed? Several of you. Because you begin to create in your imagination what a character would look like. And if the movie doesn't do well at that, you're going, well, that was a disappointment. I believe that as we begin to look at this, we're going to use our sanctified imaginations this morning. Not to fill in gaps to the picture of what God hasn't put there. But what has he said and what can we understand So the first picture I'd like to look at this morning is that of Jesus riding on the donkey. The first picture that's given to us in each of the Gospels. Now this colt, the scripture said, did not come from a used donkey lot. In fact, it was indicated to us, as I alluded last week, that there was a willingness on the sense of the owner of the donkey to provide whatever he could for the capacity of Jesus. But the scripture tells us this was a colt on which nobody had ever sat. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. I'm a farm kid. I grew up in the Midwest, and I grew up around horses and and donkeys, and and what we understand, especially for those of you that may be equestrians, is there's a difference between horses and donkeys. Donkeys are more sure-footed than horses, and donkeys are more stubborn than horses. Some of you have called your children, you're a stumbler than a donkey. And I would imagine that if you were about to make a journey into a city where there was going to be a lot of people, and particularly those that were, there's a celebration going on all around them, and screaming and hollering and children shouting, that what you would prefer to have is something that's been broken in. And yet, Matthew tells us that he rode on the colt of a donkey, and he also adds this to the story, that the colt had its mother beside it. Now, Jesus knew animals probably better than any of us, you know, he created them, so I'm sure that he had a way of creating or or communicating with them that you and they might not have. And and as I was reading that, my thoughts run to Dr. Doolittle. Some of you you may have had that same thought as well. He was born around animals. He was laid in a manger around animals. Those of you that love animals may understand what I mean, but animals have personalities. How many of you have dogs? How many of you have dogs that can look guilty when they get in trouble? It is amazing to me how a dog can feel guilt when you yell their name when they've been into something that they shouldn't have. So Jesus was understanding of the personalities. And I think it's gracious that one of the Gospels says that the mother of the young colt got to come along and walk as well, just in case the young colt gets frisky or animated or begins to display a little bit of aggression toward those around, the mother can walk over and bring a sense of calm to her offspring. And how do you think they got a hold of this colt? Well, the disciples were told, go to the village ahead of you. You're going to find a donkey that is tied there, a colt next to her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, when we read this, those of us that are in the scriptures often, we look at this and we think, here is the forethought or the prophetic nature of Jesus Christ saying, you're going to go to town and this is what you're going to find because I've already pictured it in my mind. I know what's there and here's how it's all going to come about. But the scripture doesn't say that to us. It 
possibly be that way. It certainly could. It also could be that Jesus had walked by that place a number of times and had conversations with the owner and said, you know, there's going to come a time when I'm going to need a ride. And when I do, I'm going to send a couple of men and they're just going to tell you I need it. It could be that they had a password together for all of that. We don't know. We just know that the response of the owner was that he would do it. And so it was on that donkey, on that colt of a donkey, that Jesus makes his way and approaches Jerusalem. Now again, as we think about these things, and and believe me, I hope that you will check and not just take my word for it, but that you will read this account in all four of the Gospels because there are some variances in each of them that are rather interesting. For instance, in Luke's account, there are no branches branches mentioned at all, only cloaks that were laid in the street. In Matthew and Mark, it is only termed branches that were cut down. I'm sure the tree owners loved that, having people yanking branches off their trees and throwing them into the road. And then it is only, out of the four Gospels, it's only in John that palm branches are mentioned. And so if it wasn't For John's account of this, this would be stick and coat Sunday. (laughs) Doesn't quite have the same ring to it, and I'm certain the card makers liked it better this way. So I'm not sure who came up with the palm branches being the most significant thing, but there it is. And as Jesus is making his approach, he's greeted as the son of David, the messianic king, and he's coming to Jerusalem in a purposeful way, and there's a steadfast look to him, And it would have obviously been possible for Jesus to get into Jerusalem in a rather inconspicuous way. He could have got there quietly. In fact, the gospel writers tells us that whenever Jesus was bothered by crowds, he would withdraw himself. And I've always wondered what that meant, because if I'm seeing Jesus leaving, I'm chasing him. There was time when they wanted to force him to be the king, and it says that he withdrew from them, or he got away from them. And so... It was possible that Jesus could have made it in without them knowing it. But this was to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy. As he comes in on a donkey and a colt, he's going to be lifted up, but not to a throne of power, but to a humiliating cross. And this display of Jesus riding on the colt of a donkey is a display of splendor right before he approaches the cross of shame. And we who are familiar with the story, many of you have been in Palm Sunday services again and again and again. It's important for us occasionally to stop and ask ourselves, is this what I understand? Perhaps even to be honest enough with ourselves to say, I'm, I am not sure that I get all of this. This is different than what I had imagined. And frankly, we live in a world today where people are imagining a Jesus. And the imaginary Jesus that they have created for themselves is one who fixes everything for them, that will only grant them comfort, that will give them security, give them health, bring unity to the nations, unite families in their disunity, grant prosperity and progress and so on. And they've created a Jesus in their mind that this is how he must act. And then we come across this Jesus, running on the colt of a donkey. In this expression, in this statement, where the crowd's saying, this is not what we anticipated when we were willing to welcome the king who was about to become what they thought would be a ruler. As I mentioned, some of the crowd had previously been a part of the group that had tried to force him to become king. And this strange expression of him riding in 
on an unwritten colt seemed so humbling compared to what they had pictured in their mind. And the prophet anticipates this. And in Isaiah 42, verses 2 and 3, it says, He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Describes him as a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In other words, when Jesus comes, he's not coming as a ruler the way that you picture it, that would stand in the street as a protagonist and quarrel and yell at people. He's not going to be shouting. He's not even going to draw attention to himself. Nor will he stand there as a politician and extol all of the virtues that he would have if you would just put him on the throne. In fact, the prophet says this at the great invitation of Matthew eleven twenty eight, when Jesus describing himself says, Come unto me, all of you who are weary, all of you who are burdened, tired, and I will give you rest. That does not sound like a king that locks himself up in a palace with security to keep people away from him. That does not sound like a majesty that holds people at arm's length. In fact, the only way the characteristics that Jesus refers to himself are found a little bit later on when he says this. Is, Here's how he describes himself and his virtues. For I am gentle, and I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so the first picture we have of Jesus is that he comes to us kindly and gently and graciously. And if you put all of these pieces together of the four accounts and you begin to recognize the context, what you will recognize is that Jesus had been coming from Jericho. And as you will recall, as he's leaving Jericho, he had just dealt with two individuals. One of them is a beggar that had absolutely nothing. And the other is a man called Zacchaeus that had absolutely everything. And the beggar in encountering Jesus was hoping that there would be something that he could get something from Jesus. And Zacchaeus invites him to his house that was loaded with stuff. And Jesus dealt with both of them with kindness and grace and humility in the same way that he will deal with you and I today. He is a gracious God. And he's riding lowly on the colt of a donkey. And then turn, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke chapter 19, where we get another picture for us. This second picture is one of Jesus weeping over a city. It says in verse 41 of Luke 19, As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it. I want you to just picture this scene. He wept over a city. The Lord Jesus not only wept over the grave of Lazarus, but he also looked upon the spiritual condition of the place that he was about to go into that represented by the city of Jerusalem and with it spread out before his eyes. He looks at them and he begins to cry and he says in verse 34 of Luke 13, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who went to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. John 1, 11, 12, he came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. 
Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right or the power to become the children of God. Luke 19, 42. If you, even you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. He's entering into a city of Jewish people who every day would look at one another and say, Shalom, Shalom, speaking peace to each other without having any idea of who real Prince of Peace was. As you begin to think about that in light of where we are today and the leaders of our world today, we're watching around us and we say, where is the peace? How can we find peace? How do we put peace together? The United Nations sit in the company of one another revealing its complete incapacity to grant any kind of a lasting peace. Never in the lifetime of humanity has there been such chaos and manifold bloodshed, and yet in all of the agencies and all of the think tanks around the world, in all of their attempts and all of their meetings and all of the brilliant minds at work, there's one problem, and we constantly cry it out, where is the peace? Where is the peace? Because as they sit in those rooms... There's not one thought for one moment in the hearts and the minds of these leaders that the answer might be found in a Galilean carpenter who came not to crush the affairs of man like a sledgehammer, but came as a man on a colt, on the donkey of a colt, who wept over the very city that he longed for, that they might know the reality of a peace that can come to their soul if they would but recognize whose presence they are in as he came to provide peace to us, as he bore our sin upon a cross. If only, if only you had known what makes for peace, Jesus said. And in Luke 19, 43 and 44, the days will come upon you as a result of them not recognizing them. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and will encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another and all of this will happen because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. They were rejecting the only hope they had. And I say this to you as kindly and as clearly as I possibly can. If you who are here today or you that are watching online continue to hear the prompting and the pleading and the gracious, humble voice of Jesus calling to you and you continue to reject his voice, the passage of time will not make it easier for you to trust him. Because just like the people of old, the longer you stay unrepentant, the easier it is for your heart to grow hard. And that's why we look at what is unfolded before us here in its entirety and we begin to recognize exactly what was happening as Jesus makes his way in to proceed Easter as he comes into a city that he had cried on. So we look at this and say, but the gospel is the thing that allows us to understand what's going on. Why would the king come on a cult? Why would he weep over a city? Why would he say that in himself is the answer to the longing for all of the nation's peace? That he himself is the answer for the human heart's quest to find satisfaction and fulfillment, a longing that can't be satisfied by success, by sex, or achievement, or fame, or by any other thing, only in Jesus is the answer to the longing of your heart.
And that's why he tells us in John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Oh, hallelujah! We are not condemned. But whoever does not believe or hardens their heart stands condemned already because he did not believe in the name of God's one and only son. Do you believe Do you believe that Christ bore our sins on Calvary? Have you ever taken a moment in time to stop and just say, thank you, Jesus, for what you have done for me. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin. Thank you for taking my sin on the cross. Thank you. I'm eternally grateful for the wonderful Savior that you are for me. Thank you for what you have done for me personally. I thank you for that. And the third and final picture is Jesus cleansing the temple. This should help us in several ways. First of all, in helping us understand that while Jesus is meek, he is not weak. Big difference. Big difference between being meek and weak. You see, it's one thing to see a crying Christ, a stranger riding on a colt that's never been ridden before. But what happens to him when he gets to the temple? It tells us in Matthew 21, verses 12 and 13, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those that were selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. My house, he said. As we look at this, we're wondering, what claim does Jesus have on the house? Well, if you think back over his life, you'll remember that when he was 12 years old, his mom and dad had had a time when they had gone to Jerusalem, and perhaps your family is big enough that, you know, somebody must have thought he's riding home with his cousins, and, you know, they get down the road a little bit and figure out Jesus is not here. And in a panic, Mary and Joseph turn around and run back. And where do they find him? It says they find him in the temple. And he says this to them. Do you not realize that I must be about my father's house? In other words, I own this place. I have every right to it. And so when you think of Jesus, this meek man he is not a weak man in fact he is a carpenter in the prime of his life and grabbing tables and flipping them over and throwing baskets of of doves around would not be physically impossible for him as he begins to rearrange things there and you'll notice that Jesus according to the things that are listed for us did not walk into the temple and meekly say excuse me I was wondering if all of you would be willing to move your animals just a little bit and move your tables, we just need to get a few more people into the prayer meeting tonight. That would be a wimpy Jesus. He's meek. He's not wimpy. And so this Jesus is so strong and he is so rugged that he had the power to carry our sins to the cross. 
He had the power within him to deal with the ugliest of our human sin. We have a Jesus who also was so strong that he refused to deal with hypocrisy as it related to his father's house. So Jesus, on this Palm Sunday, demonstrates a capacity for amazing tenderness and also a capacity for righteous indignation. And interesting enough, there are those that look at this particular passage and say, well, this is just Jesus losing his temper. Really? Well, let's look at what it says in Mark 11, 11, as we look at another layer of this story. It says, now Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he looked around at everything. But since it was already late... He went out to Bethany with the 12. In other words, when he first gets to the temple, it's in the evening time. He walks in and he sees all this stuff that's going on and he does not lose his temper. He leaves. And given that, we might be tempted to begin to think, I wonder what happened. Well, first of all, we know that he looked at it. He thought about it. He presumably prayed about it. And then he got up in the morning and he went and did something about it. He cast them out. He did this to fulfill prophecy And also to reclaim what the Father's house was all about. In fact, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, we read a little bit about this prophetic aspect. When it says, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord that you are seeking will come to the temple. The messenger of the covenant who you desire will come, say the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. In other words, I'm coming to the temple and I'm cleaning it up. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of the silver and will purify the Levites who are the priestly tribe and refine them like gold and silver. And the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. Jesus that we look at on this Palm Sunday celebration is one that came to fulfill prophecy at every level. He had a job to do. Worship team, if you please come. And he shows up in this last picture as a priest who came to unmask religious hypocrisy. The house of God had been turned into a market. The house of prayer had become a den of robbers. Fleecing people in the name of religion was not a new phenomenon. In fact, we still see things happening today. So Jesus tackles it single-handedly and restores the temple back to its original place. Might he do that in our hearts today? Restore us, O Lord. And then there's this interesting thing that after cleaning the temple, the rest of the week that led up to Easter time, the Good Friday, it says this, In Luke 19, 47, every day Jesus was teaching at the temple. This was under the threat of death. People were listening to him, and two things happened that week. Matthew 21, 14, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. It goes on to say in verse 15, the second thing that happened. The children shouted. can also be interpreted, the children sang in the temple. Hosanna to the son of David. Folks, I want you to know something, that when we enter into the presence of the Lord, those things still take place today. We proclaim the name of our God who is a healer. We hear his word. We respond to him. And we shout, Hosanna to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
great is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So as you're here today, you've entered into this house of prayer, this temple of the Lord. Maybe today you need a healing. Maybe today your life needs to be restored. Maybe today you've listened and you've heard the children singing downstairs as it reverberates through the floor of our church. Oh, thank God that he came in. Yes, he was riding on the colt of a donkey. Yes, he wept over the city of Jerusalem because they did not know what they had missed. And then he comes and he restores the temple. May we stand together as we think about these things. The king on a donkey, the priest weeping over a city, and the priest cleaning his temple of empty religion and hypocrisy.